Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome to Gangway the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with David Gran. Gran is a New York Times bestselling author and an award-winning staff writer at The New Yorker magazine. We talk about his latest book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI. The book was published in April by Doubleday and explores one of the most sinister crimes and racial injustices in American history. They began uh, during this period to be mysteriously murdered, uh, and what I would come to realize was one of the most sinister crimes in American history. Grant talks about everything from the initial reporting of the book to sitting down and writing. He also talks about how he ultimately arrived on the book's structure, which is different from anything he's ever done before. Interestingly enough, it was actually, again, in a kind of tangential way, I was reading the novel Absalom, Absalom, a novel I'd never read by Faulkner, and I was reading it and I noticed that he had three narrators who were kind of retelling the history in a way, each from their point of view, and it was just kind of, I said, ha, huh, that could really work. Grand's first book, The Lost City of Z, A Tale of Deadly Obsession in the Amazon, was adapted into a major motion picture and is in theaters now. His stories have appeared in the Best American Crime Writing, the Best American Sports Writing, and the Best American Non-Required Reading. He has previously written for the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, The Wall Street Journal, and The New Republic. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Grant's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. David, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Uh, thank you for having me on the program. It seems like you, you've kind of had a, a busy couple months here. Um, uh, Fla- uh, Killers of the Flower Moon uh, just recently came out, and uh, The Lost City of Z recently hit theaters as well. Is that right? That is true, yes. My theory of life is to basically hibernate for 10 years and then combine all your events into one week. <laughs> right, right, right. Very, very busy person. So um, let's talk about um, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, The Osage Murders, and the birth of the FBI, which was published by Doubleday. Um, really, really fascinating book um, uh, about something horrible that happened in, in our country's past. Can you can you talk a little bit about what the book is about? Yeah, so the book is about the Osage Indians of Oklahoma, who in the 1920s, um, because of oil deposits under their land, became um, the wealthiest people per capita in the world. They lived in mansions and they had white servants. It was said at the time, whereas one America might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. And their wealth belied long-standing stereotypes of Native Americans. And then they began uh, during this period to be mysteriously murdered. 
uh, in what I would come to realize was one of the most sinister crimes in American history, and the case became one of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover's first major homicide investigations. The the book, uh, especially, mostly the book, uh, the entire book, centers around um, one family uh, who was really kind of at the center uh, of a lot of, of what was happening, uh, and and that uh, and one of the and one person in that family is kind of very central to the book, and that's Molly Burkhart. Um, can you at first start off by reading uh, that first paragraph uh, where you're describing Molly? Yes. So um, uh, the paragraph be- begins and reads: uh, Molly was one of the last people to see Anna Anna before she vanished. Anna was her sister. That day, May 21st, Molly had risen close to dawn, a habit ingrained from when her father used to pray every morning to the sun. She was accustomed to the chorus of meadowlarks and sandpipers and prairie chickens, now overlay with the pock-pocking of drills pounding the earth. Unlike many of her friends who shunned Osage clothing, Molly wrapped an Indian blanket around her shoulders. She also didn't style her hair in a flapper bob, but instead let her long black hair flow over her back, revealing her striking face with its high cheekbones and big brown eyes. So you do a great job of describing a lot of these people who were um, uh, alive a long time ago, uh, and, and we can talk a little bit about that uh, in a little bit. But can you, um, how did you, how did you find out about what was happening uh, at, at this time in, in this time frame? Yeah. So. Um... Um, I first heard, I had never heard about any of this uh, prior to 1911 uh, when I was talking to a historian and he had mentioned how it really hadn't been written about and so I made a visit at that time I did a little bit of research and was kind of amazed and shocked that this was not something I knew anything about that had not been really taught in my books or in history classes um, and I made a trip out to the Osage Nation, Osage Territory, and I visited the Osage uh, Nation Museum. And when I was there, I noticed on the wall there was this great panoramic photograph, um, kind of span the whole wall. It's actually you could see it in the book if 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 the listeners see it. But it's um, it was taken in 1924, and it showed members of the tribe along with uh, white settlers, and it seemed very innocent. Um, but when I was looking at it, I noticed that a portion of the photograph had been cut out. And I asked the then museum director, who would later become a friend of mine, what had happened to it. And she said it contained a figure so frightening that she decided to remove it. And she then pointed to that missing panel, and she said the devil was standing right there. And for me, that is really what the book grew out of. It grew out of trying to understand who that figure was um, and the anguishing history he embodied. And it grew out of the fact that the Osage had removed that picture um, not to forget, um, but because they couldn't forget. And yet so many people, including myself, had either forgotten or never had any knowledge of these crimes. It really is um, a fascinating book and that I, you know, and I like to read um, historical nonfiction pieces and, and books like this. But I had never heard of this, uh, never heard of this at all. And it was completely surprising, especially given how... And diabolical it was. Yes, I mean, it really was uh, a, a deeply sinister. So Molly Burkhardt, who we talked a little bit about, who I write a lot about, is really at the center, um, and her family becomes a prime target of this conspiracy to target the Osage wealth. And just to give a little bit of context, so the Osage had once 
control much of the Midwest of the country, all the way from Kansas to the edge of the Rockies. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had referred to them as a great nation. Uh, he promised them in a meeting with a delegation of Osage chiefs in 1803 that he would treat them only as friends. Uh, but uh, within a few years, he began to push them off their land. And within a few decades, the Osage were forced to see more than 100 million acres of their ancestral land. And they were then bunched up into an area in Kansas uh, where they were once more under siege in the 1860s. They were forced to sell their land, and it was then that an Osage chief had stood up and he said we should move to what was then uh, Indian Territory, and it would later become Oklahoma. And he said we should move there because the land was rocky and infertile, and the white man considered it worthless, so they would finally leave us alone. And so the Osage migrated uh, to this territory, um, and by then the migrations had taken a tremendous toll, and there were only a few thousand. Um, and then, lo and behold, this seemingly forsaken land turned out to be sitting uh, upon this, you know, massive oil wealth. Um, and then the Osage, in these very sinister crimes, began to be targeted. And just for a little bit more context, not to get too in, too detailed, but um, each of those 2,000 or so Osage had what was called a head right, which was essentially a share in their mineral trust. And it was those head rights that became the target of this conspiracy. And Mali family begins to be targeted one by one when you made that first trip out there were did you go out there thinking that it was a book or, or something less you know i really didn't know at that time i thought this is a story that on its face seemed incredibly important and i thought you know my instinct was that it, in some form it needed to be told but before i went out there i really didn't know what material was there. I still didn't really have a better sense of the contours of the story. Um, I didn't really yet have a kind of emotional connection to the material that I think one really needs when they begin a long process. So at that point, it was really preliminary. It was a research trip. But at that point, I had not uh, committed or decided for sure that it would be a book. And in fact, even after that trip, I spent many months uh, writing Freedom of Information Act requests to various government institutions, tracking down descendants, um, and, and, and trying to find out what materials existed in archives uh, to see if I could tell the story. At that point, I wanted to tell the story, and then the next question was, was there enough material to actually tell it? Right, that's a, that's a question that, that I wanted to ask. So much of this book comes through archival research. Um, what's that process like for you? So, you know, it's funny, I, I, you know, I, I began, and I still am in many ways, a contemporary reporter. I cover a lot of um, uh, events, um, uh, you know, where you're dealing with living, living sources. Um, but in recent years, I've, I've turned much more and, and done stories that often involve a good deal of history. Uh, and this project involved kind of more historical research than anything I had done before. And I think in some ways the processes are similar in that, you're really just pursuing every possible leads of information. Um, but you do spend a lot more time in the archives. Um, and it, you know, it, in some ways it can be tedious because you end up looking through lots of old folders, not sure what you will find. Um, and then it can have and produce kind of unexpected results. So for this book, I spent a lot of time in the archives in Fort Worth, which is a branch of the National Archives. It's a place that looks like um, something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like this massive warehouse. And I would spend literally weeks out there just pulling files, not knowing what I would find. And then suddenly you would open one up, and there would be, for example, the secret grand jury 
uh, testimony for many of the cases, which was incredibly revealing. And so um, in many ways, the processes are similar, um, um, although, um, and, and in this book, um, even though it was very historical, I also spent a lot of time um, with descendants, and I tracked down the descendants of both the murderers and the victims, both to gather more archival research for them, but also to collect oral histories from them. Can you talk about how you how you were able to track down a lot of these descendants, uh, given that it, it's been a long time? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it, it was a long process, and the book, because of the, you know, unlike a contemporary story, which I think not always is the case, but is a little bit of a faster process, because you kind of, this, a little bit easier to find sources, easier to kind of get the kind of narrative details you need to tell the story. So um, with the descendants, I spent a lot of time, I would rent a boarding house in Osage County um, and stay there um, and track down descendants that way. And then they would hopefully lead me to other descendants. I did a lot through um, kind of Ancestry.com, just kind of basic stuff. Um, I was pulling wills and testimonials and through them, I could often see who descendants were. Um, but it was a process, and um, for example, I tracked down uh, Molly's granddaughter, who was really helpful, a lovely woman named Margie, but that took me a couple years to find her uh, into the process. Molly, you mentioned Molly again, and, and, and also you mentioned a little bit earlier that, that when you first started, you weren't sure how you were, you were going to find that emotional connection uh, for a contemporary reader, uh, and Molly, in, in many ways, is, is that connection, I think. When did you find out about Molly uh, in the reporting process, and when did you know, as a reporter and a writer, that she could be kind of that 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 thing that's going to hold everything together? Yeah. So, um, so you know, early on from reading about you know and pulling records and old newspaper stories, I knew you know that Molly's family was at the center of of the murders. That you know her family was really targeted in this very sinister way. Her older sister, Anna, who I mentioned when I read that paragraph, disappears, and she's then found a week later shot in the back of the head. Molly's mother dies of suspected poisoning. Uh, Molly had a younger sister named Rita who um, lived nearby, and one night about three in the morning, Molly woke up. She heard a loud explosion, and she goes to the window and looks out, and in the direction of her sister's house, she sees this orange ball rising in the sky, and somebody planted a bomb under her sister's house, and killing her sister and her sister's husband and an 18-year-old white maid who lived in the house with them. Um, and, and, and so some of these basic details about the murders I knew, but one of the things that struck me was when I would read the bits, and there wasn't a lot really written about these crimes, but the bits that I did read, um, you know, Molly really was usually just a sentence. Um, she had almost no agency, and yet here she was, obviously, at the center of the story, and so for me, early on, um, I really wanted to, to, to get the Osage perspective. And I thought um, many of the accounts really lacked emotion because you didn't really have a sense of what this was like for the people who were actually living through it, who were the targets. And so it certainly became my objective early on, but it also was one of the great challenges because I needed to find the materials and I needed to find the descendants. And um, you know, I did my best on what I could find to hopefully record that perspective and get that sense of emotion, because to me, she really is, in many ways, the heart and soul of the book. And she is the conscience of the book, I think, as well. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, how long, how much time did you spend reporting on this project? Um, so I would say the project, you know, probably from beginning to end, 
you know, and publication, you know, probably took five years, but the actual kind of intensive work was probably four. And um, there was a period of about a year where I was just writing to institutions to see what kind of archival material, doing Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, and then probably another year after that of kind of intensive reporting. Um, and then I kind of would begin writing and outlining and then doing more reporting uh, to kind of, you know, fill in the gaps to try to find materials that I realized had holes. Or, um, But um, there was a four years of kind of intensive reporting and writing. Um, I would visit the Osage Nation territory every year and stay usually for several weeks, and I spent several weeks at various archives around the country every year. How did you balance this with um, also doing work for The New Yorker? Well, not very well, sadly. <laughs> um, I I really disappeared. I'm I, I I wish I were quicker, and I wish I was a better juggler. Um, early on, when I was doing some of the kind of requests, I was able to work at the New Yorker when I was just waiting for the kind of Freedom of Information Act requests to come in and see what materials I would find. So there was a good year where I was very productive at the New Yorker, um, but there really was uh, about a you know more than a two year span where I really just kind of went down the rabbit hole and um, was not really able to juggle very well. I think that that rabbit hole, though, aspect for a, a, a historical piece, and, and I've written um, one piece that, that's based primarily on historical archives uh, and have, has, have looked into another possible book-length project. The only way to do that is to go down the rabbit hole, right? I mean, because you're to get in those archives, you have to just stay in those archives. You have to stay in them, and 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 you and you realize. I mean, there are, you know, if you want to write narrative history, which is what I kind of aspire to do, which is to say, um, you want to give the reader a real sense of who these human beings were like. You want to have a sense of what the world was like, how it smelled, what the streets looked like, what the houses looked like, how people dressed, to get fragments of dialogue and from letters and court transcripts. That's just a very time-consuming process, and it involves also a slower process than if you witness things. So, you know, I would have to kind of litigate, or <laughs> litigate is probably not the right word, but interrogate sentences. So I would, you know, you would sit down and you would write something, and you would be looking at transcripts, and you knew that the investigators went to somebody's house. And so you just start to write, and you say, oh, the investigator showed up on their stoop, and and then you suddenly you have to look at that sentence. You say, wait a second, did they have a stoop? Was there a porch? Um, so then you scramble and you try to look for photographs. And maybe you find them and you say, oh, okay, they did have a porch. Or you don't find them and you have to then rewrite that sentence and just say, you know, showed up at their door. Um, but it's that kind of forensic meticulousness that is just a very time-consuming slow process where, you know, if you are witnessing something, you know exactly what the door looked like. Or <laughs> or you could just call the person up and say, oh, when you got to the house, were you on the stoop? And <laughs> so it's those small little things, sometimes seemingly meaningless, but are very important to get right uh, in all our aspects that is very time-consuming. The uh, was, there, was there anything, as you were reporting this, that really surprised you once you found out? Yeah, I mean, I would say the thing that surprised me most was um, the breadth of the conspiracy. So the Bureau uh, was ultimately able to capture some of the killers, um, but their working theory was that there was kind of a singular evil figure uh, who had henchmen, 
who perpetrated these crimes. And the more I dug into the archives, the more I interviewed Osage descendants and um, gathered evidence from them, the more I realized that this was much less a story about who did it than who didn't do it, and that there really was a culture of killing, and that so many members of society within this community were complicit in these crimes, either from directly process, profiting from them, from payoffs, um, corruption, or from silence, that there were many willing executioners. And I think that is something that really shocked me and still shocks me and took my breath away. It is, in so many ways, it's it's almost depressing. Uh and 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 then so then I'm wondering, you know, did did it tell you anything about who we are as a country today? Did it give you any insights into that? Well, I think there are these chapters of our history that we often neglect and ignore, and I think often stories like this that um, were neglected. There's a reason why I think this story. You know, is you know it should be in history books and isn't. Um, now the Osage obviously intimately know this history, um, but I don't think you can really understand the formation of this country. I mean, this if you don't understand cases like this, this story really is this case is a microcosm of so many of the forces that played out over centuries in this country, in the clash between white settlers and Native Americans, all these kind of intense. Uh, forces. Um, it gives you insights into the prejudices at the time. Um, and, you know, to this day, you have uh, descendants of both the murderers and the victims living in the same neighborhoods, and their fates are intertwined. And in many ways, that's the story of America. And so I don't think you can really understand the country even today unless you understand cases like this. And in many ways, you know, this case is about the birth of, it tracks with the birth of modern law enforcement, but also tracks with the birth of the country. Um, so I think um, it's it's quite important. And I don't think, for example, the question about today, you know, I don't think you understand, you, it's easy to understand something like Standing Rock unless you understand stories like this. So I spoke to uh, an Osage veteran of the Army. Um, he received a Purple Heart in Afghanistan, who during the demonstrations at Standing Rock uh, you know, walked almost the whole way from Oklahoma uh, to, to Standing Rock to participate in the demonstrations. And during that quest, he told me he thought a lot about the Osage murders. And now the cases are separated by so long, the details are different. The Sui were not profiting from oil. They were really interested in protecting their land from possible oil spills and their sacred burial sites. But it was still the same fundamental issue, which is the rights of Native Americans to kind of protect their sovereign lands and protect their sovereign rights. When it comes to writing, um, do you have any particular uh, uh, procedures, or I, I'm not I'm not thinking of the the right word, but uh, what, what's your writing process like, especially on a book project like this? Well, you know, writing for me is always a challenge. I, it does not come naturally to me. It's something I have to kind of work at and always work at and, and revise. I think there are writers who are, are much more naturally gifted than I am, who comes more facilely. Um, so for me, a, a big part of the writing process is just really sitting my rump down on a <laughs> desk and just devoting the hours, um, and, um, you know, and just keep kind of going back 
at it um, and kind of overcoming doubts, which I suppose a lot of writers do. Um, I don't know if there's so many secrets other than working through it, but I, you know, I do certain things, which is I try to read uh, works, not necessarily, you know, I'm reading history for something like this, but I'll often read just great writers mm-hmm. that might inspire me um, while writing. Um, maybe writers that may in some ways have not a, a literal connection, but just some kind of spiritual connection to the material. So when I was working on this book, I'd often read a lot of Western writers. I wanted the style of the book to be fairly simplistic, um, have a kind of Western style, um, a little bit more in the style of almost oral histories. Um, and so I read a lot of Western writers, people like Willa Cather, or Wallace Stegner, um, and people like that uh, for inspiration. John Joseph Matthews, who's a great Osage writer, was probably... Um, somebody I returned to over and over again. He wrote during this period, not about the murders, but just to gather. He's just a beautiful, exquisite writer. He describes the, what the environment, what the world looked like, um, and also has real understanding of kind of Osage traditions and Osage sensibility. So that was somebody I returned to. And so even if I wasn't directly reading these people because they were going to be going into the book itself, um, they sometimes just help me find inspiration in the writing process. Structurally, did the book uh, end up looking or, 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 or you know, structurally, structurally, is that what you initially planned or did, did things change as you were working? Yeah, so uh, the book is structured very unusually. I never structured a book like this. Um, it's told in uh, three chronicles, uh, uh, told largely from the point of view of three separate people. The first person, Molly Burkhart. Uh, the second person, one of the uh, FBI agents who leads the undercover operation trying to crack the case, and the final perspective in the present for me. And there was a good year period when I was doing the research and gathering the material where I really was bewildered about how to structure um, the book, and to the point where I wasn't sure if I could actually do the book because um, I didn't know how to tell it. It, 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 it was it, I found it very overwhelming because there were so many different murders. It spanned so many years. There were so many different FBI investigations. There were PIs. I didn't find a way to kind of have control of the material, but also kind of a perspective on it or insights into it. Um, and so, interestingly enough, it was actually, again, in a kind of tangential way, I was reading the novel Absalom, Absalom, a novel I'd never read by Faulkner. And I was reading it, and I noticed that he had three narrators who were kind of retelling the history in a way, each from their point of view. And it was just kind of, I said, ha, huh, that could really work for this. And um, there wasn't enough material. In a, um, one of the challenges originally was that there wasn't one central figure who kind of could carry you through the whole history because it spanned so long. So doing the, the three the three different people, including myself in the present, so I could then fill in the gaps from what the other people missed um, and give you a sense of what had happened today. So the structure just solved a lot of problems. And it also got at, one of, for me, what really was one of the central themes of the book, which is about the elusiveness of history and that each person in the, each narrator in the book or each individual who is um, trying to kind of make sense of a very bewildering world around them 
only has partial information, and they're all reliable narrators. Uh, Molly's a reliable narrator. Tom White, who's the FBI agent, is a reliable narrator, and I hope I'm a reliable narrator. Um, it's not a postmodern novel in that sense, where somehow the narrators are unreliable, but what is true is that they have limited information. They don't have access to all the facts, and then that is particularly true in a conspiracy. And it's often only over time where we get a fuller portrait of what really happened. And so that also allows me to show the much deeper conspiracy in the last section by new evidence that I find. Um, and there's a wonderful kind of metaphor image um, uh, that the Osage have for in their old days where they would send people out in kind of a trying time. They would refer to them as the travelers in the mist. And in a way, we are all travelers in the mist trying to make sense of this world and trying to make sense of history. Um, and that's a really challenging, elusive process. So that's a more complex, and I don't ever say any of this stuff expressly. It's hopefully done much more subtly. But it let me get at that theme, which I think is very important to this book, because there is a certain unknowability to the story that needs to be um, uh, you know, reckoned with. I know uh, we, we mentioned at the very beginning that um, uh, Lost City of Z, which is another book of, of narrative history that you've done, um, is in theaters now. Uh, and you have a couple other uh, uh, pieces that you've written that are kind of in, in process uh, with regards to uh, being made into films. What's it like for you to watch um, something that you have, uh, you have written and reported as, as nonfiction be turned into a feature film? So, um, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, for for years, uh, you know, some people would have some interest in some of my stories and, um, you know, nothing ever happened with them. So it was kind of a strange process. So, I mean, The Lost City of Z, for example, that came out in 2009. It was actually, I think, option in 2008 and the movie came out in 2017. And so it was only very recently that anything has gotten made. And um, But it's a, I, you know... And you, it, it would be disingenuous to say it's not a slightly surreal experience <laughs> to see something that you've worked with in a kind of a, a, a... It's not even so much that... I mean, they're just such different mediums. And one, when you're working with history or reporting, you know, it's very two-dimensional in many ways. Um, to suddenly see the Lost City Z, for example, which is about this British explorer disappeared in the Amazon looking for a lost city, you know, to suddenly see this figure you work with kind of back in life in three dimensions uh, is very unusual. I tend to keep the processes, though, very separate. And so, um, you know, there's a kind of frisson about watching it. Um, but, you know, I really just focus on my work, and I don't really... You know, I always tell the people if they're with the materials option, I'm happy to answer any questions you have. But I don't try to write screenplays mm -hmm. or, or get involved or do any of that kind of stuff. I really just try to focus on the nonfiction and what I do. And, you know, it's it's what's nice is it one, I work very slowly, so it helps me live. <laughs> and then the second thing is, you know, it helps get a story to reach people that books often can't. Mm -hmm. And I'm often dealing with kind of recovering bits of lost history or lost stories. And so um, that's very gratifying and, and, and I hope will kind of complement and lead people to the book uh, as well. Well, David, thank you so much uh, for joining the podcast. I appreciate it. It's been great talking with you. It was great chatting with you too. Thank you so much. I've been talking with David Grant. 
Grant is a New York Times bestselling author and an award-winning staff writer at The New Yorker magazine. His new book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, was published in April. We've linked to a lot of Grant's work at our website, which you can find at www.gangrythepodcast.com. You can find just about all of our podcasts, we've done 52 of them now, on our website. You'll find all kinds of interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Justin Heckert, Jeannie Marie Laskus, Chris Jones, Janet Reitman, Wright Thompson, Ben Montgomery, Chuck Klosterman, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Mac McClelland, and so many more. Just go to www.gangraythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangray Podcast. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Just go there and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Technical help, as always, is offered by John Scrata and Steve Cease. Noel Crouchley is a student assistant. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.